G'day folks, my next guest, Naz Jabbar. I've got to tell you, this next interview blew my mind. We laughed, we cried, it was very emotional. Uh, in emotional in a way that I understood the next guest's struggle. We talk about his bottom, and not his physical bottom, more the bottom of his career. We talk about the struggles, we talk about COVID, and can you believe that he has absolutely blossomed through this whole process? We talk about mental health, and the Beirut blast pivoted him into the stratosphere to become an extraordinary leader, and somebody that I'm very excited to introduce you to on the Raw Hospitality Show Season 2. Here's Naz Jabbar. Well, good morning. We've morning, got an amazing sir. guest here, Naz Jab. Thank you for having Robert me. Robert Marchetti, uh, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Heard a lot about your story. Um, we've done a deep dive of your life, and I can't tell you there's so much uh, greatness about you. There's so much excitement about you. The producers were excited to have you aboard. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are, how you started? Because we just before we got on live, we talked about washing dishes. Yeah. Um, you know, something I started at age 13. How did you get, and I'm not going to say this industry, because you actually aren't necessarily in hospitality, which we'll get to later. How did you start off in life in, you know, the restaurant in world? Yeah. Uh, well, I went to college across the street. Okay. To Baruch College. We're at Neuer House, by the way, <laughs> yeah. in uh, 20, 25th Street. Yep. 25th Street. So on 24th Street, Baruch College, a city college, which speaks volumes to the fact that we need to fund more public education because it provided a lot of immigrants and children of immigrants who mm -hmm. didn't really have the money to go to NYU or Columbia a chance to get a proper education. Mm -hmm. I came here two weeks before 9-11. Uh, two weeks before 9-11. Two weeks before 9-11. Wide-eyed wow. and filled with hope. Uh, I had an American accent simply because in Palestine, I went to a Quaker American high school. Mm -hmm. So there was so a... So you, you were a Palestinian and you were born in Palestine? I was born in Jordan. Jordan, uh, okay. So uh, born in Jordan and grew up between Jordan, Lebanon, and Tunisia. Uh -huh. My dad was with the PLO, so there's mm -hmm. a whole you know yep. trip up until the Oslo peace process. Mm -hmm. And um, the conversations about politics, whether it comes in manifest with, through, with food or with art or whatever, was always a part of the conversations growing up. Right. Right. You know, people usually have conversations about food or conversations about cinema or whatever. Or around food or around the table. Around the yep, table, yeah. Sure. We have conversations about the IRA and yep. like, yep. you know, what's happening at the Cuban front and whatever, mm -hmm. all that stuff. Wow. So it was, it was always very politicized. And um, a larger-than-life figures always were around the house, mm -hmm. right? It wasn't abnormal for Arafat to come in for yep. dinner. It wasn't abnormal to, for dad to go, you know, and meet, um, you know, whoever how president. How old were you when you remember this? I mean, I don't remember anything from 83 to, like, 86, but, like, right. as of, like, 1990, like, especially around, like, the yep. Gulf War One. You know, uh, that, you, did you know this is absolutely not made up? The first biography I read was on Arafat. And I was really? aged, uh, I think I was 21 or 22. And yeah, I remember, one, I know I always got to find food and everything and people that know me will laugh, mm. but I remember reading in his biography, his diet, how he reversed. He used to eat what people eat for breakfast at night. <laughs> and he used to eat, you know, like... Like he liked milk and honey. And for pretty the much, you know, yeah. he would be eating, you know, fish and salad and stuff. I used to like him a lot. Right. And now I am... I'm, well, a lot of the work that comes in later, we'll discuss to that, is, is, is my own revolution against the patriarchy, mm -hmm. including the, the PLO, right. which I was very, you know, disgusted with, even mm -hmm. though my father was a part of that. Sure. Um, but yeah, so like you, you, so you grew up in this kind of household and then you mm -hmm. grew up in this, like you want to be some sort of like revolutionary leader, sure. right? Um, 
But you know, like, you know, you're just a young kid at that time. I went to this American school, then I come here for college. But the Intifada started, mm-hmm. which is the second uprising in Palestine. And at that time, I think within two weeks, Israel was able to cut off the entire uh, country. Mm-hmm. Like one village couldn't go to the next right. one. You couldn't make commute to the city. A lot of things were destroyed. One of my most visible memories is when uh, Israeli black American made Black Hawk helicopters yep. uh, bombed the uh, police station next to the school. And we were like wow. fighting for our lives because like literally they, they just hovered over and then they bombed. Why did they bomb? Two Israeli military officers who were caught and I guess were executed by a mob in the police station, which is right adjacent to a school of children, sure. which has like 300, school, 300 students. And the Israelis gave a warning in one hour, we're going to bomb the place. So there was wow. like chaos. Like, how are we going to get these kids out? Mm-hmm. And I remember being very frightened because I ended up making it home, but I had no idea if my sister made it home because she was in another part of town. Um, there was no cell phones at the time. Uh, I don't know if How my parents met. I was 17 at the time. You would have been frightened for your life because you yeah. got the logic there as well. Yeah, like yeah. you can see it. Like, and, you, and, then it was, and you can actually replay the entire thing on CNN because CNN had it live. Right. right. So, you know, you grew up in this kind of environment and then you finally come to the States. Don't forget, I went to a Quaker school, which yep. meant that I knew more about American identity than I knew about myself. I knew about the Salem witch hunt trials more than I know about Arafat. Wow. Right? Um, you come here, and all of a sudden, 9-11 happens, and then they're, you're told you're not one of us. So what was that like? Because I remember exact. everybody remembers, well, most people my age remember exactly where they were. And I actually was finishing um, a dinner service. There was no emails. I know Nothing. people find that hard to believe. There was no Facebook for the millennials. And it was around 11 o'clock at night, I think, in Australia. And I remember I went into the pastry kitchen and my French Moroccan pastry chef was in there and he was um, sobbing and he was listening to the radio because he used to listen to the international radio and they were talking it through. And I remember just thinking, that sounds horrible, but at that stage it hadn't developed. It was like the first half an hour. I think it was like 9.30 or 10 o'clock here. Um, So I remember where I was. I remember watching the entire thing for seven straight hours not going to bed. And then uh, it was on cable news or something in Australia. But as an Australian, we didn't really have a perspective, right? We didn't understand where your world and we really didn't understand, the, you know, what was happening in the US. What was the next day like for you? Like, I mean, the you're same here for day. two weeks. You don't really know the city. Nothing. Did you know anyone? I had cousins here yep. who I was staying with. Right. And I think it was like around maybe my dad woke me up. Like it was over a phone call. It was yeah. like around 9 a.m. or whatever. And he's like, are you watching the news? And I'm like, what happened? He's like, you know, the World Trade Center got, you know, bombed. Right. And, you know, of course, you know, being from a very politicized household, I knew in 93 it was bombed, right? Yeah, like, sure. so I'm like, oh, like somebody like take him in and took a truck and like sure. try to explode it. And he's like, no, no, like planes hit it. Like it was a targeted attack. So yeah. I go and I watch the TV and I sit there. And quite frankly, like I'm in an absolute uh, disbelief for the, for the fact that this is happening. It looks something, you know, it looks sure. dramatic, right? Yep. That's one. Uh, the t- like the the violence of it was unreal, but also at the same time, I'm like shit, like because like 
I hope to God it's not one of us. I hope to God it's not one of us. Thought? Yeah, because for a long wow. time, the people who hijacked aircrafts were Palestinians. And also yeah. because, you know, racists don't have borders. You know, it's you're just not from here. Yeah, you know? yeah. But I didn't like really think about getting harassed here or whatever. Sure. I just assumed you know, they're going to definitely retaliate, right? Yeah, sure. And... Um, Growing up, I mean, I, I mean, I grew up around Bassam al-Sharif. Bassam al-Sharif was yeah. the guy who took four TWA aircrafts, like in 1967. Sure. He was on the cover of Time magazine. Later, he became the guy who advocated for the for the two-state solution and the peace process. It was his document that negotiated with the Israelis, and he was taken off the list and was part of Oslo. But like, I was always like consistently aware of this, and I th- I thought like that's it, we're fucked. Yeah. Right. It didn't turn out to be us, yeah. but it turned out to be my kind. Yeah. Right. What do you mean? Like Arabs. Yeah. Like that did this, that conducted this, and that. It's interesting you say my kind because, I, you or know, my tribe. Or, I know, I know. Yeah. For me, it's like you know, I find the whole border thing kind of. No, no, I hate nationalism. I mean, yeah. I and and for Same. me, I it's think nationalism is a stuff. nationalism is a racist ideology. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't really uh, grasp that yeah. till that moment, and yeah. what happened afterwards, yeah. right? Because the division between us and them started happening, yeah. right? But the us and them consistently happened and the resistance to the us and them is what got us got me into my business right yeah. later later it's on it's interesting how you but, even have some responsibility by saying my kind when you should have none because they're not your anybody that does that regardless of where they come from not sure kind, i shouldn't you know. take responsibility for the for that and arabs and muslims should not be explaining why they, these attacks have happened you know like white people do not explain how have to explain why a white guy shot yeah, a bunch I'm, of people yeah. But when, when I said like, the, the, the comment here of my kind really is that like at the end of the day, the news put it out there as Muslims and Arabs sure. hijacked the aircraft. Yep. They went to, they did the bombing and now we're at war with uh, Osama, which later became yep. war with Islam, which yep. later became war with Iraq, which later became war with Saddam, which later became war in Yemen and on and on and on. So even if we don't, if, even if yes, in principle, right? I don't have to. I don't have to do that, and it becomes this. The truth is, like, I have to sit down and explain because I'm not explaining about me. I'm explaining about like why you shouldn't be going to attack these people who had did nothing wrong to you, right? Yeah, I understand. And that's the consistently the issue. So when that happened, it was it was uh, you know it was it was a whole new world in in the sense of uh, how you behave with it. Now I'm going to be very honest. I did not face racism in New York City. That's great. But. And that way, of course, it's amazing. It speaks volumes to New wow. Yorkers. Yeah. But I also was in the Bronx. Interesting. So the people of color there, right? I mean, they, they, what, they, what they saw was fucked up. They were extremely angry and upset. Sure. But they didn't take it on on me. Now, it's right? interesting because I just maybe three or four months ago watched a documentary of the high school students at Battery Park School. It was around that area. Mm-hmm. I don't know the exact name of the school. And that, you know as the dust was blowing over Battery Park near 9-11, for those people uh, don't know the map of New York, and they all had to leave, and they were on their, They had to walk across the bridge to get home because it was the only way. Traffic was down. Everything was down. Everything was down, and interesting enough, all the phones were down, but a young kid had an old analog phone as they were just being faded out, right? Remember yeah. the old analog phones? And it was the only phone that worked because it wasn't on the network. And a lot of the immigrant children were ringing their families because their parents were smart enough to look what was happening on there and thinking, yeah, we got something some problems, might happen right? to my kid. And I remember reading those stories of the young girl walking across the bridge and somebody yelled something out racist to them on that moment, right? Look, without even having any information and a few of the students protected her and she rang her father on the phone. And so you do get those stories, but the fact that you're in the Bronx 
it's interesting because it was just a mixture of immigrants, right? It's all immigrants right. and it's all people of color and it's all mostly people who are below a certain economic standard. Mm -hmm. And therefore, like their struggles and uh, I guess the way that they view America was a little bit different than the lens of how you viewed it if you lived in, a, in Battery Park City, right? Yeah. Simply because like you don't have the same access to resources, sure. you have police brutality, you have all this history, right? So they were very upset about the attack right. and they were very patriotic and they're like, like, this is fucked up, we have to defend our country. But they also were not um, dismissive of me not being one of them, right? which is really important. They didn't put like the other on label on yep. me, right? Where when I got, when I started uh, school in Hunter College at the time, I remember there was a class and I it's, it's a stupid moment, but like everybody was like, how did you feel about like the anniversary of 9-11 like a year or two later? Yep. And everybody was sharing their moments and every moment is real. At the end of the day, this is, you know, the United States and sure. these guys got American. They're sharing, you know, real intimate emotions about how they experienced 9-11. And I'm the, I was the last one to go and I'm like, well, you're drumming up for the Iraq war. I just came down from my entire city getting, you know, bombed. Yeah. Right. Much more people dead. Yep. And yes, it's awful that this happened. But like this happens also everywhere else because yep. of this. Like, but isn't government. it interesting? Like, I mean, you know, like, it's, so I agree. It's, it's kind of interesting. Like, I mean, I've, I've, I've obviously got immigrant blood. I had my parents came out of World War Two and German and Italian and Australian. And God knows what else I've got in my system if mm. I went on ancestry. But a lot of times I find the lack of travel is usually mostly the ignorance factor. Right? Absolutely. So, I mean, look at all the Trump voters. Right. And so, yeah. so it's interesting that like as a child, I had parents that, you know, we traveled a bit and we had no money, meaning we traveled by ship. It wasn't a plane. Yeah. But even now as a gr an adult, I've traveled to countries that I don't think uh, anywhere special. I mean, as the country is special, but it's not, you know, special for me to travel. I, I love it. You know, I've been mm. Azerbaijan and Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and all these other countries. And I find the more and more I travel, the more my mind opens. I wonder if that's a bigger problem because particularly now with news media being, you know, hammered about being inconsistent and lying and all that kind of stuff. It's more so in those days because there was a lack of information. So it was actually the opposite of what's happened now. We've got so much information. But yeah, they don't what do we believe? I do believe that interaction with people will allow you to have an open mind. I think people remember how they behaved, yeah. right? Like sure. with, with you. So I always, and this is something that's very important to me. Like I have to tell you, like I've met a lot of people from the hard Republican South, farmers, mm -hmm. you know, throughout my time, met them, listened to their problems, hung out with them. And then when they got to know me, they're like, we like this guy, yeah. right? And they're, and it's automatic, like, oh, we met a Palestinian guy once. He was great, right? Yeah. Sure. So, and then when they remember these kind of things, then they start opening up to understanding all these things. It's very hard for them sometimes to be like, uh, you're, you're kind of like, I hate them, but you're okay. Yeah. Uh, that happened to me a couple of times. I had somebody come up and tell me, oh, you're, you know, um, a credit to your race. Like yeah. that has been said to me, right? Yeah. And, I, you know, you'll get those. But for the most part, you, the human, the one-to-one -one interaction or what we call it, and listen, our space, gastro diplomacy. Sure. Really, is what really allows you to break down those barriers of racism, break yeah. those barriers of hate, and break yeah. those barriers of everything through just human interaction. And like Maya Angelou said, people will always forget what you said, but they remember how you made them feel. It's interesting because as a child, if I think about, you know, being in Australia, being an Italian German kid, 
particularly after World War II when the Germans were to blame mm-hmm. um, in, in everybody's eyes for the world. And they just assumed that everybody in Germany was a Nazi and having a, a Bavarian mother that was a, ch- you know, that was a child that, in that stage of World War II and you know, running across the farm as the air raids are coming in into Bavaria. When I was in Australia at school, um, you know, there were very big differences. But interesting, my parents were, were very conscious of saying, we're going to name my sister Suzanne and my new Robert, because wherever we end up, they feel like they're going to be generic Christian names, and Absolutely. they weren't. They weren't religious. We weren't, you know, super, you know, yeah, yeah. anything. But it was interesting that they thought like that before, and even at school. I mean, there were clear differences in, yeah, yeah. you know, the Australian kids would have. I don't know if you've heard of Vegemite, but the Australian kids would have horrible Vegemite and white bread, and I'd roll in and have sausages and peppers and a mm-hmm. baguette, you know, yeah, and, you had the and, and there was a big difference in just yeah. the way we ate and and and. Sure, there was racism, but I never really saw it as racism because I was too young to know what the, what that was. Because that's a grown up thing; kids don't do that. Um, but uh, I, I real I just thought it was people being idiots and, and you know bullies or whatever. And I so I kind of I kind of bounced back with that. So I never really understood racism in 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 children until I grew up later and realised that even the kids didn't understand what they were even doing. even the ones who were conducting it. Yeah, but what's interesting, you brought up an interesting point. Like, so the same thing happened with a lot of Arabs and Muslims, like the name Muhammad, you know, people tried sure. to wait from it, people didn't wear their veil to school and whatever, at that time at least, and there was a reclaiming. But and I, just for the record, like I am an atheist, but like I yep. fight against Islamophobia and yep. things like that. Uh, but you mentioned something very interesting, which I always advocate or talk about, is that like people can change their name, people can change their nationality, people can immigrate, people can sure. even do a plastic surgery, but they never change the way they eat. Yep, I right? agree. Yep. You know, they can go on diets, Yep. And they'll fall back. If you like olive oil, za'atar, and labne, you'll yep. always eat that. If I you literally, like sausages and peppers... No, no, I literally got some shit this morning. So one of the, Somebody, I was cooking plantains and putting sumac on it. And somebody yeah. goes, that's weird. And I'm yeah, like, like, do you know sumac? Isn't it a pepper? And I'm like, it's a berry. Like, yeah. look it up. Google, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. But that's really interesting because food does bring people together. Even if you do consistently eat similar things, uh, you know, um, when I was in, I've been to Jordan, but when I was in uh, Baku, for example, in Azerbaijan, I remember spending three hours with a nine-year-old woman that was cooking on a 17th-century pit kind of. It look, kind of looks like a a tandoori oven in the ground. Wow. And this cafe that I went to it was very simple. It was goat's butter, beautiful, incredible honey, some eggs with tomato. That's it, and some bread that she cooked mm-hmm. in this oven, and. She'd been doing the same thing for like her entire life. life. And we had this, she didn't speak English and she didn't have to. Um, and I didn't, you know, I, I, I couldn't understand what she was saying, but we had a really great three hours. Yeah. And we did it through food. It was really, it was quite spectacular. And I, I agree with you. I think food is one of those things where it does bring people together and it and it lo- you lose a little bit of ignorance as well. Oh, absolutely. In, especially in Western diets where we like to eat the tenderloin and the eye filled. We think a head on an animal is disgusting, yet... You know, what's yeah. the difference? With the brain and the eye and the well, cheeks. Well, no, I, I said once to my niece, <laughs> to which it was very funny, was that um, I remember once I was eating lamb brains and she was eating a lamb leg and she said to me, that's disgusting. And I said, wait, what? You're eating lamb? I'm eating lamb. She goes, no, but you're eating the brains. And I said, well, I got to tell you, the uh, the lamb rump is much closer to the asshole than the brain. <laughs> <laughs> and she stopped eating meat yeah, after makes, that. Yeah. So, But the point is, is that there's this real um, view on how food can bring people together. And I think that's a really important part. I mean, absolutely. It not only brings people together and it crosses cultural barriers. And at the same time, it allows people to talk, to tell a story, their own story in a different way. And there are like problems that I don't like. I think that a lot of like, and you know, 
I hate cultural appropriation, but I think a lot of people are talking about how, you know, let's say a chef can culturally appropriate food. And I, I find that to be a little bit offensive, a little bit yep. to talk about. Because if you, if I end up traveling to Mexico, for example, and yep. I stay there for like 10 years yep. and I learn from Oaxaca how to make food and I come open a Mexican restaurant, I'm not culturally appropriating the food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see what I'm saying? I, I, don't, know if I, really, so, I don't know if I really pay attention to that. I mean, I remember the There was a saying, big dialogue like two or three years ago yeah. about it. Now, like, for example, I go and talk about, like, you know, Israeli and Palestinian hummus. Sure. At the reality of it, like, do I give a shit if Israelis make better hummus? No, I don't. They can make better hummus. It's totally cool. Yeah. Like, you know, Syrian, Egyptian, and Lebanese, and Palestinian Jews also have the right to claim hummus. Yeah. My main concern is that, oh, there's a hummus factory in a settlement on my land that gets water seven days a week, and I get water one day a week. And that's the issue that I'm trying to take you to. Yeah. It's not about like who can claim the right to hummus versus yeah, the fact, the fuck, really? that, yeah. But versus the fact yeah. that like the hummus that's happening on yep. this settlement is affecting the livelihood of my mother. Yeah. Because water is being redirected, and there's no water for them to to drink. I mean, like this so, is the so. Problem. Here's a question. So, so, you, I've heard, and I, I was reading my notes again today that we wrote out that you're using food not necessarily as a hospitality moment, as a vehicle to inspire good action and positive change, right? I, I heard that about you. Yeah. So, because you're very hard to pin down about, you're not a hospitality guy. No, so not what, a chef. You, you're not you a know, chef. People, they, people say like well, chef this I, or I that. Well, I think the that you're not a chef because I've seen you, you've seen, you want to what some of the stuff you produce, but what do you mean by that? Like you use food as a vehicle. Food for me is an access point to create bigger change. Right. And again, like I keep using the term gastro diplomacy, and gastro diplomacy really is the people to people action on scale yep. through food. So um, the way, I mean, the, the term came to me from Professor Johanna Foreman, who teaches conflict cuisine at American University. A person what does she teach? Conflict cuisine. You have conflict cuisine. You really have to talk to. I'll introduce you to her. She teaches the grad students on conflict through food. Right, wow. and she's like a mentor to me, and she introduced me to this whole thing. And then I always loved Bourdain, sure. and Bourdain told the story. Jose definitely fought food insecurity, and I'm like, how can I bridge those two together and like presented the storytelling through scale, through food while solving a problem, etc. Sure. And this is what I what I like to do, and I've been doing. Now, the way that it works is very simple. I think people want to help. I think yep. people want to learn. I think people don't want to be associated as this label or that label. Sure. And I think the Trump administration allowed that divide to become more clear. Sure. But people don't want history lessons. Mm -hmm. People don't have the time to read 700-page books uh, about the Lebanese Civil War, like Pity the Nation, right? Yep. Um, and also, like, you know, we know that the one-minute news videos could be dangerous because it resulted in things like QAnon. You know what I yeah, mean? Like, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's awful. So how do you tell the story in an entertaining way, in an authentic way, in a real way, in a vetted way, sure. right, um, over a place where people can get that information? Mm -hmm. The dinner table ha is definitely one of them. Right. And this is what we did. And it all really, really started with the Trump ban. So I guess we skipped a few things, but in the middle of all of this, I ended up graduating from... Baruch in finance, they couldn't get a job. It was the financial crisis. I ended up still working in restaurants. I was started. So wait, you came here just pre 9-11, studied, no. and then finally when you were ready graduated, to go, it was you graduated in financial crisis. It was pure Palestinian, <laughs> no, no, Palestinian luck. I truly yeah. believe it. And I think now the fact that I'm in disaster relief, it yeah. just only proves that like, yes, every, all my life is a disaster. It's going to continue all to be. All life has been for this reason. Yeah, exactly. So maybe I should just continue doing disaster relief because <laughs> I'm idea. always in disasters, yeah. right? Um, 
So, but the conversation keeps keeps going in that I ended up consistently in restaurants. And it wasn't until I got to Ilili uh, that I learned the respect for food. Mm-hmm. Right? Chef Dan Dorado, who used to be the head chef at Tell us Ilili. about Ilili for the guests who don't know. Ilili is by far the number one Lebanese restaurant in the world. It is owned by Chef Philippe Masoud, um, who brought Lebanese cuisine in a world-class format. And where is it? The, on 28th and 5th yep. here in Manhattan. Yep. Uh, I've actually been there. I think it's it, fantastic. It's fantastic. Yep. But the person who brought all that food is Dan Dorado, mm-hmm. right? He was the head chef for four years. He elevated the cuisine. Uh, he elevated the dishes. And he was the person behind the creation of all those phenomenal dishes for the most part. And Dan, who's my co-founder now, uh, you know, Sometimes he could be kind of militant in the kitchen and, yep. and, and like a very like a chef's chef. Yep. Um, but when it comes down to the understanding of food, uh, I truly believe he's a genius, right? And the way that he can bring flavors together, the way that he can uh, translate them, the way he can tell the story is great. Now, what happens is that I go and talk about a certain cultural shift. For example, you know, Arabs in South America. And then we have the pastaron mashi, which Eater just reviewed as the perfect dish. Yep. Right. So, this is the conversations that we you know we keep having, and he has them with our other chef, Chef Lacelli, and they come up with the dishes together. But um, that's the whole point: is that he he has the imagination to create. Yep. And I have I bring the politics before, or the, the or the dish, or the cultural thing that I want to hit before the dish is created to them, and then they sure. create based on that. And this is, the, this is how it works. So anyway, um, I met Dan. He, tr- he completely shifted my whole thing on food. And at the time, you know, I couldn't get a job, um, like, in finance, you sure. know, and I was only working in restaurants. And the older you get, the more you realize that you're not going to get hired, yeah. right? So entrepreneurship was something that I was like, you know, Maybe I'll just, you know, say I'm an entrepreneur because I'm embarrassed to say I'm a waiter or yep. a dishwasher, sure. dishwasher sure. or whatever. So I was like, yeah, but if I want to be like an entrepreneur, at least I have to know what the fuck I'm talking about, right? <laughs> like, you know, like I have to be entrepreneuring yeah, something, yeah. yeah. So in uh, the only internship I ever got was at Focus Features, right? At yep. the film finance wow. unit. Yep. And at that time, um, I was like, okay, I want to do a video on demand service in the Middle East, like right. Netflix, yep. which I thought was visionary, right, yep. <laughs> at the yep. time. Yep. Uh, but I had no coder. I had nothing, you sure. know, so I didn't know what I was doing. So I went to Startup Weekend and I learned a few things. And then I downloaded Stanford's curriculum because I couldn't afford to go to Stanford, nor did I have the GPA. I mean, I sucked. I graduated yep. from Baruch with an awful GPA simply because, like, I was working the whole time to send money back home. Sure. Um, so eventually I took all of this and I started more and more learning on how to build a company. So the Netflix thing didn't really work out. And then the second thing was something called Kuju. And Kuju was... Um, this nutritional on-demand service. It's on-demand health. We were the first ones to use docs. On-demand what? On, uh, health on-demand, like doctors oh, on-demand, sure. like on oh, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, right. t- yep, telehealth. Yep. But it was for nutritionists. Yeah. And this was like 2014, 2013. Yep. And I think like even if I stuck with it now, I think it would have exploded yep. uh, because everybody's doing telehealth. But, um, you know, my, the guy who quoted it with me was kind of on the heavy set and I smoke hookah all day like none of us give the shit about nutrition <laughs> you know just like we had we had a few we had a few clients uh, but it taught us a few things sure sure um, anyways all these things didn't really work like work out but they taught me some certain set of skills and eventually two friends approached me and they're like we want to open a restaurant and the restaurant is on the Lower East Side and I think that was a moment in my life which everything was pivoted what year is this? this is now 2016 2016 right 2016 and then at the time I met a lovely young woman 
and I was in love. Yep. And, you know, she comes from a good family. She went to Columbia. She's upcoming in the comedy scene. She's growing. Yep. And, um, you know, like I had to become a better man. You know what yep. I mean? Like I just had to, I had to provide, you know, you get yep. that ego kicked in, um, which are now things that I'm had were breaking as like what's the definition of man and, and yep. what how it could be. But anyway, at that time, that's how I felt. And we started this restaurant. This restaurant was originally Afghan. Mm-hmm. We what kept was it called? Mazesh. Mazesh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we kept the name, but we turned it into like a, a Palestinian you South. You took of- over an existing restaurant called Mazesh. Mazesh. It was friends of ours from college that gotcha. didn't make it work. And we uh-huh. just bought the space out. Sure. But we kept the name. We didn't yep. rebrand. And it was serving like Afghan cuisine, yep. mostly. And we switched it to Palestinian cuisine. And I was adding as much as I can. 2016, that's still a pretty interesting time in the world about Arab politics and... and oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole... The, the reason why we came to the world stage as mm-hmm. a company, mm-hmm. and myself included as part of that, is because of the politics. Yeah. I don't... I didn't come... I didn't make it because I make two-star, three-star food. I'm not Eddie, sure. right? You know, like yeah, 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 he yeah. makes amazing stuff at Chinese Tuxedo. Um, but for me, like, I think it was it was the resistance to it. So when we took over... The restaurant, uh, it was a small joint, and it was on 137 Rivington. Mm-hmm. And that joint belonged before to uh, Eddie Wong. He oh. had Bauhaus in it. Yep. And after that, there was Pak Pak. And I was so excited because yep. I was like, oh, two giants came out of there. Yep. I must be the third. <laughs> of course, you don't know that neither of them made it in that space, yeah. but like they will never tell you this. Of course not. Of course, I met not. Eddie later and he's like, yeah, dude, it didn't work out. Of course, he like he sold his book and that and he moved to 14th Street and sure. things changed from there. But at that place, it was really hard to make it yeah. like in particular. And Pak Pak also as well, you know, they just won the James Beard Award. They were there for a, a, quite some time. I don't, like, I, don't, I don't have no idea what their numbers were, but they definitely shuttered and they moved to Brooklyn and that's, yep. that's where it was. So I, did, I wasn't smart enough to know that. So now I learned a lesson about locations, yeah. right? And doing yeah, your history on, on yeah. who has it there. And the, the joint was doing well, but I also, before all of this, looked at the space. It had like this um, counters that you look at the wall. We don't have money to do construction. And I'm a big believer. I know people like used to argue about it in, in articles that they hated it, but I love it, which is the communal table. Yep. And I learned about the communal table from my days at La Pan Quotidienne, yep. which all of that comes full circle later on. Sure. So Christopher Mars hired me as a waiter at La Pan Quotidienne before Ilili. Right. There was a little bit jump. Right. And at La Pan Quotidienne, it was just still exploding. Yep. Uh, I learned about organic products, all these things. And then I got a, a little gig at the business development unit right. at La Pan Quotidienne. And La Pan, at the time was looking to acquire goods. So they were buying Tunisian olive oil and all that mm-hmm. stuff. But I was able to get them Palestinian mint wow. from the Palestine fair trade. So every time you went and got a mint lemonade, yep. they were using Palestinian product. Wow. Now, here's the thing. Like, Le Panque de Dien didn't really buy it because they're like involved in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. They just yeah. bought it because it was a product. It was yeah, listed. Yeah. It was affordable. And I felt good because like we were able to acquire a product that gave me some sort of national pride. Sure. And it helped out the farmers. Yep. And without understanding how to articulate that, that was like impact, right? Right. Like how do you make sure that the most vulnerable are getting the product space so you can help out those farmers and how can we do this across the world, right? So that was like my first kind of taste into it. But I love the communal table, getting together on a communal table. So I took out everything apart and put a communal table. And on that communal table, I used to host a dinner once a week called From Ramallah to Bogota. Showcasing, From Ramallah to Bogota. Yeah, showcasing wow. Palestinian Colombian food. And the reason for that well, is... Why Colombian food now? So here's the thing. 
uh, in the Palestinian territories, there's a half a million of us that are displaced in Chile. Mm-hmm. And a few hundred thousand are displaced between Colombia, Venezuela, uh, Puerto Rico, um, and the rest of South America. And they made their way to the United States from South America. My and grandfather. You're places in they can't go home. They can go home either that they left before 1948 sure, or after sure. 1948 they got uprooted and left or after right. 1967. The immigration really started after the 1920s famine in Lebanon. Right. And it, it went down all the way Palestine, Syria. They all ended up in Argentina, Chile, and Brazil yep. and moved up. My grandfather was in Brazil for 25 years in Sao Paulo, for example. Right. right. So th- th- this kind of immigration in South America growing up in Palestine, we had access to products that are not in any shape or form, Arab or Palestinian, right? Mm-hmm. Like mette. Why the hell are we drinking mette in, yep. in the village, right? It's just because somebody is in Argentina and they sure. brought it. Um, uh, pastelitos, which are the empanadas, right? Yep. Uh, some people in Puerto Rico, they're making it at weddings. You know yep. what I mean? Like yep. they're serving it. So I was always very interested in that. And it allowed me to tell the story that there are displacements of Palestinians somewhere else, which mm-hmm. is a large population outside the Arab world in this particular community. Mm-hmm. And they were able to integrate easily because Arabs and Latinos are technically, they look the same. Sure. Uh, the language has a lot of like common words and they both could be religious in the same way. So they got accepted and integrated really, really faster than when they were here in the United States. And religion didn't really play a matter to it because there are yep. like Arab Christians, right? Sure. And Arab Christians here still don't necessarily mold and fit in very well in American society or your Western society compared like as if they did within Latino society. Right. I guess there was a lot of similarities and they and they worked it so out. So you did this you did this communal table as an experiment. As an experiment. Mainly because I also like this so the store was losing eight thousand a month. Yeah. And I was under a lot of pressure and I also had nothing and I was I, like I mentioned like I wanted to be somebody. So like uh, the when the place was losing a lot of money I ended up not taking a salary and living on my credit cards. And to save it, I was doing the the dinners that we're talking about, which sure. were selling out, trying to figure out any way or mean to yep. break even to get to, you know, now you 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 get into the business that you got into, yep. like the idea of like restaurant industry and the challenges a restaurateur goes through. Yeah. We're insane. Yeah. You have to go it. through a lot of shit. Yeah. Like to, under, to make it work. Um, I always look at when somebody says to me that they, um, they're out of the industry. I kind of look on them as a survivor. They, yeah, <laughs> no, they are definitely survivors. I mean, like, honestly, like, I will never advise anyone to get into this business. Yeah. It ruins you. It ruins lives. It, I mean, it definitely ruined me. I mean, like, yeah, okay, yeah. now things look great and whatever. Sure. But, like, it didn't come, like, at a at a, at a free cost. Like, I mean, no. this shit took a, took, yeah. a, took a hit. And I'm sure for you, I'm sure for everybody else, I mean, I can't even imagine, especially right now with this industry, and the question is, uh, how do we help out restaurant owners who... Maybe like to them, this is their entire livelihood to yeah, feed, I mean, their, I, like, to feed look, their families, right? You know, um, I've lost probably 20 years of investment in yeah. a matter of months from COVID. And, but I kind of look at it, it's kind of interesting. And everyone's always like asking me how I have such a positive outlook. I'm like, I'm a restaurateur. We're used to this shit. Yeah. Like we're kind of built for this. And everybody I've interviewed on the show, not one person, Mark and I, the producer, um, have listened to has said I'm giving out, I'm getting out like I'm getting out of hospitality it's even, hard yeah and even some of the um, older generation like my friend Mike from Sparks and he started in finance like you uh, or wanted to be in finance and then failed at that because he really didn't enjoy it and he you know spent his, his time now behind the bar at Sparks and he's still not back to work 12 months now straight and he misses it. And he said, I still wouldn't leave this industry. And yeah. it's, and even though it's caused a lot of pain and, and it's, you know, it's certainly not going to cause you a lot of wealth unless you're Gordon Ramsay and you're smart enough to have a show. 
Um, or and Blackstone backing you. Yeah, well, yeah, they probably trained him. Um, I, you know, I've spent time with him, and he's actually pretty switched on with that stuff. But outside that, I don't know too many millionaires. Well, that's not even a lot of money these days. But a millionaires that have restaurants. I mean, they're always going to have backing. It's it's a no. it's a funny industry. So tell me where. So we're at 2016. You're basically hemorrhaging money, but you're doing well. But you got this communal table. Um, and it's Bogota, essentially. From Rolla to Bogota. I was selling the dinners and I was uh, using whatever, like, uh, at the time, uh, experiential dining was starting to become a thing. Yep. Airbnb still didn't have their Airbnb experiences. Yep. Eat With was around, if mm-hmm. you know Eat With. Mm-hmm. And I was listing my dinners on Eat With and similar sites yep. that had a very, like, niche community. I mean, they were so small that um, I got a call from Eat With one day very lovely people, and they were like, which we got acquired by Airbnb later. And they said, you know what? We have this guest coming. She comes to all our dinners. Please, she's a super VIP. So like they like tracked how many times she went to dinner that she became a super VIP to the yeah. startup, yeah. right? Um, and it worked out. I mean, with the dinners were going well, and they were making some money, but it was still not getting us out of the red. Yeah. I was still under a lot of heavy pressure. I'm able and unable to make rent. You know, like. We, we, this girl wants like she wants us to get married we need to get yep. married right and we can't afford to yep um and it it was just it was it was just in the shit then we sell the restaurant right. and we had this good guy guarantee so i guess yep. uh, to explain it to the people who yep. don't know it like if you're up to date on the rent yep. then you can sell the place and transfer the lease and what yep. have you so i had some time and t- between the sale and the transfer over of the lease and onorwa called me onorwa or onra is the United Nations Relief Workers Agency. That yep. is the same agency that uh, grew up giving us sack of foods and rice yep. when we were in Jordan. It's yep. a, an organization that deals with Palestinian refugees. It was established in 1949 uh, after the, the creation of the State of Israel and the displacement of Palestinians. And it was also the same organization that Jared Kushner defunded. Yep. And uh, he's, they said to me, look, we have this refugee that came in. He's Syrian. He's gay. Um, and he can't find employment. Mm-hmm. Can you help him out and hire him in your job? And again, as we both know, the restaurant yep. industry, there is no barriers to entry. <laughs> no. You could be in, you know, somebody who's dropped out of the sixth grade, and yeah, yeah. and you don't and have. We're that. all kind of bandits anyway. We're you know, kitchens exactly. and dining rooms are usually. Yeah. We're all kind of beaten around a little bit and and find a tribe in in a restaurant. Exactly. As soon as you yeah. show up, respect the trade, yeah. do your job, yeah. and clean, and go home. I think you're good. I, don't I mean, think anybody really. I mean, in great, I mean, Bobby in, Flay was a dropout, right? You know, it's like I don't think um, <clears throat> in restaurants, and certainly not in mine, anybody really gives a fuck if you have got a horn coming out of your head. They're just like, just pull your weight, <laughs> just pull you, yeah, pull your weight. Let me respect you on the line and things yeah, like that. Exactly. But I couldn't hire the guy again. I was hemorrhaging money. I had no job, and I yeah. also certainly had no business. This, yeah. The thing was almost done, but I was already doing these dinners. Now, my best friend is uh, Justin Levine. And him and I are this interesting kind of like uh, BFF couple of yep. like Palestinians and Jews together. Yep. And he's a playwright. Yep. And he just recently got uh, nominated for um, a Grammy and a Tony. He's the, one of the, he's the musical director of Moulin Rouge on Broadway. Uh-huh. And as he was making, I mean, of course, I mean, he was still in the industry for a long time. Sure, sure. Uh, the NYU thing, whatever. But uh, be, before Moulin, he did a few Broadway things that was getting his name out there. So he had access to certain people and he loves storytelling and he clearly related heavily with the syrian crisis Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day the displacement of his grandparents out of europe Mm -hmm. after world war ii was something he related to so i told him i said i want to do this like 
you know, dinner for this guy where, you know, we all get like $100 each. We pay and just get him a thousand or two thousand dollars just for him to get a room. The guy was on the street. Sure. And I think we have twenty friends that we can invite, and he can cook the food. And Palestinian food and Syrian food relatively the same. Yep. Even though you can use the same ingredients, so I have everything. And and the old he'll tell his story. Justin said, "Okay, we did the dinner." And then we did the dinner. We realized the story was so depressing. So Justin comes up to me and he goes like, "Nasser, nobody wants to listen to this. Like, it's so, it's so, yeah. like you know, it's true. We shouldn't change it." But goddamn, like, yeah, like because you spoke. I mean, look, like, you, you want a social experience, but you got to not forget people still want to have fun, right? Exactly. So Justin, in his Hollywood kind of training, he's like, "We need to give this a happy ending. Americans love happy ending." Fuck yes. And I'm like, "What does that mean? <laughs> what is the fucking happy ending? The guy got displaced. He's twice displaced. He's yeah, gay. Yeah, he's yeah, Syrian." Yeah, yeah. And he goes like, "No, no, no. You see, it's all about the overcoming." And then all of a sudden, his Hollywood type came yeah. out, and we rewrote the Syrian refugee story. Right. The facts were there, but it went from like. Please help me. I'm broken. To like, I'm here to overcome. Yeah, that's really the entire change. Wow. And then we did another dinner. Eater showed up. Melissa McCart. I will never forget her. I, I owe her a lot. She was the editor of Eater New York at the time. And Melissa wrote a page or like an article sure. about this refugee dinner that's helping out senior refugees. And it went fire. Wow. I mean, overnight we were getting booked for months. But like we already helped out this guy. He got a job and a house. And we realized what's more important than the dinner, it's not the money. Mm-hmm. People, the hundred bucks that people are paying. No, no. It's the ask at the end of the dinner. I need right. a job. I need a house. I need this. Yep. We were so surprised that the ask was more powerful than the dinner itself. I could probably comp the entire dinner. Yep. But the people that are coming and, they, and he'll say like, I need X, Y, and Z. And somebody to somebody is like a phone call away. Yep. So because he got a house and because he got a job, all of a sudden, refugee organizations started calling us and be like, can you take our, can you feed into it? How many Why? more dinners have you got? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, wow. I, at the end, at the total of it, by the time Vogue reported on it, it was like 5,000. But at the end of it, it was 10,000 people that we fed. And wow. And thousands of people that we left it out of poverty and not just in the United States. Wow. It was like also Sweden. It was also in Turkey. Uh, we had, we had different stuff. And this goes later into this. So <clears throat> when we did the dinners, the dinners were executed Elili style, you know, yep. like, uh, you know, professional, sure. all that stuff. And at the same time, the storytelling, Justin style or Hollywood yep. style, right? That was like done with like uh, a beginning, a middle and end. There was a climax about the third course. Dessert comes out. There's overcoming, like, let me help. It was very emotional. And the business Baruch training was like, okay, now we have, you know, created a hype. We created yep. supply. We created demand. So let's look at the, the, the demand for a second. And let's look at the the guests who are coming. Let's use LinkedIn, right? Yep. So all of a sudden, like, Smart. I have a guest list. Yep. Okay, this person is in housing. This person is in literature. This person is in a magazine. This person, because the, the magazines that we were in had a certain audience. So if you were in Vogue, a certain audience read that book. Yep. If you were in the New York Times, a certain audience read that. Sure. So we started dividing and conquering the guests and then realizing that, oh, there's somebody in the room that could help out this particular refugee with X. Right. So then all we need to do is make sure that they're seated in kind of like the concierge or or the host at a three-star Michelin restaurant. You know, so we started seating them in different places because now we grew out of this 10 people, you know, and we went to bigger spaces. Uh, And we even used VR when VR came out. We made people like, yeah, we had this uh, guest that came in who owned lots of real estate. And uh, we were able to get the same walk the Guardian did a piece yep. of the refugees walking through Hungary all the way to Germany. It was done on VR. 
we were able to get VR sets and made that person walk through it because the person that was speaking was on that walk. Wow. So they did it, and all of a sudden, we emerged them yep. in it. And that was really planned, right? Because now they felt it. Now they saw it. Now right. they heard it. Now they yep. ate the food. They heard the story. So, hey, can you give us a free apartment? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, yeah. like that. that, sure, that. Sure. So, and it worked. It yep. worked 95% of the time. Yep. There were times that it didn't work, but that's because the lack of skill of that particular refugee was so dire that it, and this is something to speak about volumes in terms of like the, um, the refugee organizations when they do placements, that maybe somebody from the outskirts of Syria, a woman that's hijabi, who doesn't have a high school education, might not be able to survive in New York. Yeah. Maybe she needs to go to Canada, yeah. right? Because the programs of help are different yeah. and they're catered to it. Like, how are you going to survive in New York on 200 bucks yeah. and you don't speak the language and you don't run and you have no education? Like, it's, yeah. it's, it's insane, a, right? Yeah, so is. you're actually making them fault even more, right? Yeah. Or sometimes do things that they don't want to do, yeah. right? Or like in terms of like you know, what, what industry they go into or exploitation they go into, which is sad. So anyway, with that said, that all happened and it was a lot of shining and, but nonetheless, I lost the restaurant and now I'm back at waiting tables. My yeah. relationship is in shambles and uh, I'm depressed as shit, but I'm, I have debt up the ass, yeah. which is whatever, yeah. like, you yeah, know, right. every restaurant, exactly. <laughs> but then I get a, I get a call uh, from Johanna, yep. Professor Foreman, and she said, listen, I'm working on this project in Turkey. I would love for you to come and check it out. We have a little, some issues that we want to work out, and particularly on uh, issues on, on the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, the United States is very interested in doing a kitchen that allows Turks and refugees to cook together and start their food businesses. You're an entrepreneur. Can you come teach a business course? Can you come teach this? And also like see what happens. So I went to Turkey with them and I was like, oh, this is great. So this is a, U- a State Department project to like yep. do this. And we don't hear about these projects no. that uh, Australia aid or US aid yep. or whatever. You know, we always hear about like the military places coming, yeah. but there's also a lot of good happening. Sure, it's sure. just that like it doesn't get highlighted. No. And this particular kitchen graduated hundreds and hundreds of refugees and Turks that launched their businesses. Uh, and it was called the Life Project. And I re- like that was my first interaction in gastro diplomacy, and I did a great job. Right. But I still came back. I mean, like you know, government gigs like this don't pay you much. Like it's no. five hundred bucks and a stipend and, yeah. and, a, and a flight. Yeah. And sure, you stay in a nice hotel, right? But yeah. like it's like three four days, and you're back to reality. Yeah. Um, so I did that. Oh, I just needed to do it, and I did it. And then I came back, and I didn't know what to do, and I was still depressed at the time. Dan was now exiting Ilili for private reasons. So this is when you and Dan came up with. Your new well, no, of that time. It was it was it was a little bit after. Yeah. Uh, but not necessarily at that time. Right. So right when all of this was happening, of course, like after the shutdown of the restaurant, I jumped to uh, a food tech company called Comida. Yeah. And Comida was supposed to be the migrant kitchen, right. right? But differences of opinion between me and the co-founder, it didn't really happen, and it ended up tanking. Although we had all the press, and we launched at South by Southwest, and yep. you know we had all the Checks marks. And of what a, was that business? What was it going to be? It was experiential dining. It was uh, basically you book. Let's say I go to your restaurant yep. and I you're off on Monday, so I take your entire space and you do a curated dinner for food diners, kind of like eat sure. with, yep. you know, mm-hmm. uh, Airbnb for food. And the idea was, I mean, we had launched in multiple states. We had thousands of users and we had a, a working tech platform. Yep. The idea was hot. I mean, Airbnb met with us. You yep. know what I mean? Like, yep. but at the end, nothing transpired right uh and it ended up shutting down and we didn't really work out to survive we did a lot of catering and uh as i exited comida 
And not, right now, like I now went to Morocco at that time with another gastro diplomacy mission in 2019 for American halal beef, which was great because it introduced America, the Arab world to what uh, the respect that the American government can have towards producing halal meat, which yep. they didn't do. Australians used to do it a lot, New sure. Zealand for sure. Uh, and that was what the Arab world was buying. Anyway, after that, I came back 2019. Uh, I get fired from Ilili. I break up with my ex. And, but I have nowhere to go because my father is really sick in Palestine and his right. medical expenses are high, so I end up homeless. So what year is this? That was 2019. So you're basically on the street. Yeah, and that's how I met Eddie. Eddie I Bucks from Chinese Tuxedo, from Chinese tuxedo. Australia. He is a kind, kind man. He didn't know I was on the street. Yeah. I mean, him and uh, Dan Skinner, I know you yeah. probably know him. Yeah. yeah, Dan lives in, this, in the same building as yeah. I do now um, or in the same complex, but... Um, they, they definitely knew that I was in, like depressed as shit. I mean, it yeah. definitely was not, I was not, I was the most awful server they hired. Yeah. You know, like they gave me the weakest section because like yeah. this guy is like. And I bet yeah. you to this day, if I, if I ring Eddie today and say, hey, he won't say that. No, 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 of course. Because he's, no, no, he's, he's, he's a good, you have, I mean, to me, like they were, they were saviors. Yeah. And they didn't know the whole story. Really, so they didn't. They hired you at Chinese Tuxedo? Yeah, so I needed. A, I was on the street and I couldn't do. I needed a job, so I I went and applied for a waiter position at Chinese Tuxedo. So I got and hired. Chinese Tuxedo for the viewers that don't know, Eddie Bucks is an Australian living in New York that opened a really contemporary Chinese restaurant in Chinatown. Yeah, run by an Australian, which is pretty ballsy. And uh, so that's no, but that's a but it's place. Uh, the I would I mean I compare like you know how we, I said Eli is one of the best Lebanese restaurants. Yeah. Chinese Tuxedo is one of the best Chinese restaurants I, I think in, in the country. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's phenomenal, innovative. And honestly, just kind, kind people. Them? It was an ad on Colony Agents. Uh, okay, and yeah. then you, and I then you roll up. in there. You meet Eddie. Yes, I mean, I meet his manager, and then um, I get hired. And they gave me something, and I remember that's the only thing that really made me happy. Uh, they allowed me to cook for them Palestinian food. Wow! Uh, for so family meal. For family meal. For family wow. meal. So what's amazing is that I already knew from the gastro diplomacy stuff, whatever, is that there's a big Lebanese population in Australia. Yep. And the Lebanese love... We've got really great Lebanese food. Exactly. You guys love Lebanese yeah, food. Yeah. So I went in and convinced the chef and I was like, hey, can I make you guys like Palestinian or Lebanese food? And they're like, yeah, of course, we'd love that. And, yep. and I did that a couple of times. And... Maybe you get you here at Noy House to cook a, I would a, love a family that. meal. <laughs> I would we, love apart that. Apart from the fact that we should do some Yeah, I would, I would love that. Yeah. And... Um, it was very, it was very warm to have that. But at the time, like as soon as I, but you know, like I mentioned, I wasn't really on top of my game. I was really depressed. I always wanted to go home early. Yep. And the reason for that is like, I just, I just hated like myself. Yeah. Right. I didn't need to, I didn't want to be working there because the, like, I just didn't want to go home and, and where was home at the time? Like, do yep. I miss my bed? Do I go crash at a, a friend's couch? Yeah. You know, I remember like around Thanksgiving, like I missed, I missed the bed and I ended up at the hookah bar. Yep. And that's when, uh, you know, the word got out between our and where friends. where were you staying? I was staying in a shelter on 9th and C. Wow. Yeah. And then also at a friend's couch. Yeah. Right? So that was like, uh, he really came through for me. And then when people got the word out. Yeah. And, you know, that this happened, especially afterward, like I ended up passing out at the hookah bar on Thanksgiving at the time. That's when... Um, uh, like, oh, Nasser's going through some shit. I was embarrassed to talk about it. Sure. So people got together, and friends of mine got together, and they helped me get a room. So I got a room wow. for like three months. Yep. And at that time, uh, I have left, left Chinese Tuxedo, 
and went to work at Canoon, which is like a, a Palestinian restaurant that opened in Chelsea. I was yep. like manager, waiter. But then Dan has approached me before that, like by a month. And he's like, listen, man, you know, you go through the shit. What's Dan's last name? Dan Dorado. Dan Dorado. Yeah. Just for the listeners. And Dan came up to me and said, hey, like you already did like all this refugee stuff and whatever. And you have some clout and, you know, I'm doing catering and whatnot after he left Lili, But I feel like you can sell corporate catering. Come up with the name of a company. Like he wanted to help me out. He wanted to get me out of the rut yeah. of the shit. Wow. And that's all he cared about. Like he was fine. He was living in Barry Park. He had a wife. He had a kid. Yep. And yeah, he was hustling, trying to make it. But he already, like you know, again, like Dennis. In your eyes, you'd made it. Yeah, I yep. mean, he was a chef's chef. Also, like mm-hmm. you know, he could do I don't know, like twenty gigs a year of catering for like uh, private co- uh, catering, weddings, kosher yep. dinners, um, yep. you know, Passover dinners, which he has a, a lot of clients. He'll be fine. Yeah. Um. And his wife was working as well. So, like, they're okay. So, uh, he just wanted to help out. And so, I came back home, went to my best friend, Chris. I was like, you know, we need to come up with the name of a company. I think, you know. And this is like, Kawita now has exited and whatever. And he's like, I don't know. Like, we like, we do work a lot with immigrants. What are we going to call it? I was like, I don't know. Migrant. The migrant kitchen. And we went on Google. And we started looking at, like, random names. So, yeah. a, ge- a Google generator like, yeah, came yeah, up yeah. with the migrant <laughs> kitchen. It was, like, some innovative stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, it was called the, we called it the migrant kitchen. And I love the the pink color, which or pinkish purple, yeah, which Kamita has. Which yeah. I've seen you in a chef's jacket. Now, yeah, so exactly. It actually, actually suits you that color. What year are we, just for the listeners? This now is now 2019. Like, 2019. It's like like okay. end of 2019, like yep, October, yep. November, um, and December, and then we begin 2020. Now, between that time and that time, I was able. Uh, through using AI softwares yep. to lock in a catering at WeWork. And the way that I Wait, did it... You were using AI software? The way I was pitching business is I, uh, you was, would go to LinkedIn and yep. type messages. Yep. I have a friend of mine, his name is Sebastian, great guy, like truly, truly a coding genius. Yep. Um, and he's like, I was, I was complaining to him that I would get up at 6 a.m., Right before, like, I had to go to, you know, work at my own kitchen at the time. Yep. We're doing some catering. And then later at night, just to, like, do two hours of pitching yep. messages for LinkedIn to office managers. Yep. And it's annoying. Yep. And he was like, we're done with that. I'm going to write you a software that's going to add a 1,000 people and talk to them as if it's you. Right? Wow. So he's like, you give me a 300-word message. And it has uh, the, um, like, the, you intro, put in the, the, yeah. the, the intro plus, like, the press and whatever. And it's going to add and pitch, add and pitch. And it did it for thousands of people. Like, I would wow. just leave the computer working. I would come back, and I would have, like, 15 leads. Wow. Right? And one of those leads was WeWork, right? Yeah. So WeWork, Charlie, yep. who's also an important character here, right? Yeah. He's like, yeah, uh, we're open. Charlie? Charlie Balsam, who's now a head of marketing, yep. used to be head of community at Doc72 right. at WeWork. WeWork was going through a financial crisis at the time. Yep. They needed to sell food. They know it wasn't going to be much, but they couldn't afford to give free food anymore yep. to their members. So, But yeah, they, they wanted to... They, they were going through, for the listeners, going through their growing pains, but they also came close to an IPO, which basically undressed them, and then everybody realized they Precisely. weren't really a business. They were they were just you know, a big just, real estate tenant too big yeah, to fail. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and and I think that you know there's that that market there, I think is it's kind of interesting because... Um, they definitely grew too quick um, yeah. and grew grew their you know their pant size oversized. But um, and what's interesting is Adam Newman and I were the same intro freshman class at Brook. Really, and we both competed with each other in the competition. Adam Newman, the founder of WeWork. So so that that debacle was un 
dressing itself, but then they approached you about bringing food potentially to sell. To Doc, to Doc 72, which was supposed gotcha. to be the crown jewel. Yeah. All right. So we went there. Me and Dan did it. We started, uh, we rented out the kitchen of, uh, okay. um, sorry. 20 minutes. 20 minutes. No worries. Uh, yeah, we'll definitely. So we rented out the kitchen uh, um, of the back of a bar. Yep. Which was on Williamsburg. Yep. It was owned by uh, Chef Smitty. And he also somebody who worked with um, Dan. And we were just, I was washing dishes. He, Dan was cooking in a space that I, you know, I would say maybe smaller a little bit than this room. So three uh, square meters. Yeah. <laughs> not, like, yeah. And, and very like, you yeah, know, yeah. like much yeah. more. So we would go and I was really down and Dan just kept on telling me, please be smiling. Please be happy. Like he was really, really, really trying to get me to be uplifted and motivated. I honestly yeah. didn't think he just wanted anything else just for me not to be in a dark space. And, sure. I, and I will owe him my life for that. So anyway, we're there. We're at Doc 72. Our first customer is Sean King. So all of a sudden, Sean, civil rights activist, comes in. We start talking. Of course, like we're, I'm starstruck. Like he yep. loves Palestine, whatever. We start taking pictures. And, and for the guests, who's Sean King? Sean King is a civil rights activist mm-hmm. um, who is the editor of the, I guess the now it is the North Star magazine, Yep. right? And uh, clearly social justice, he's embedded with all the social justice stuff, yep. the, the uh, Bernie Sanders campaigns, all that sure, stuff. Sure, sure. And his team, you know, they love immigrants yep. and they like us. And despite the politics or the differences or whatever, you know, they come and buy every day. So Sean, yep. Sean took a picture and yep. all of a sudden they, people liked us. And all of a sudden now we jumped from one WeWork to the next one WeWork to the next. We had a bunch of like, I think 25 WeWorks at the time. Wow. So now we're cooking a thousand meals almost out of this bar, but we don't have freezer space. We yep. just have refrigerated space. And yep. now we're going to multiple. We hired a couple of guys. Each yep. each two will go to one WeWork to the next. Yep. The, the slowest WeWork for us was um, the one on 14th and 8th. Yep. Uh, but we love the team there. And you're preparing food for them to sell. To sell, yeah, like ten dollar lunch place: protein, yep. uh, rice, yep. or, or and and starch and veg. Very very simple stuff. And it was mostly like fish and mm-hmm. vegetarian options. And in the beginning, we did it by uh, cuisine. So yep. like we had Indian Day, Cuban one day, and they're like, that "Sounds great." Yeah, but then Dan was like, "Done with that. Let's actually make good food." Yeah. Right. Yeah, we didn't have like you know we didn't have ingredients from I don't know. Uh, Creekstone, right, sure. which is one of the biggest uh, purveyors, uh, which have like amazing products. We went to Restaurant Depot, but what we ended up doing is that like instead of like doing uh, salmon, he'll Cuban salmon, he'll add shawarma. He'll add this. Yeah. So all, now the fusion of Arab Latin has started to come out, right? And, yeah. and, and, but I mean, you know, like the old saying is those those cooks who stay true to their roots cook the best food. Dan, we were cooking food for like nine ninety nine or eleven ninety nine, and he would get real corn and he'll cut it. And then I'm like, just get the canned corn. They're not going to tell the difference. And he's yeah. like, no. And like, he, that's the type of guy he is. Even if he's selling a $6.99 sandwich, he will give you the best ingredients and he will not cut corners, yeah. right? Sure. And I was just baffled mainly. And I was kind of angry because now I have the one, the one who had to cut the tomatoes and the skin <laughs> off. I'm like, dude, we're making a salad. Why do you want me to cut the skin off? And he's like, oh, because one is sweet and the other one is not good. I'm like, we're, this is not Elili. <laughs> like, I was just so pissed. Anyway, but he did that. And I, I love that about him because he carries that with him. But here we are. We're doing this. Now we're selling all the food. All of a sudden, we get our first big gig, yep. which was, uh, I think, 24K at the time. And it was uh, the Palestinian Writers Festival. It was wow. supposed to be this huge festival with Angela Davis and yep. everybody in it. 
and we were going to cook food. We did a demo for the founders and, and we were like, this was our biggest gig. That's yeah, it. This yeah. is, this is going to, this is going to make me get rent for three more other months. Cause yeah. I only had my rent for three yeah. months. Right. And you know what? Uh, then of course, like March 12th, March 13th. So this is your hat trick. Yeah. Another backstory that, you know, doesn't really come out is that while my relationship was ending, yep. I was having an affair with another one. Yep. And she was this doctor at, at a hospital. And sure. um, anyways, the COVID unit got hit at that time. Yep. And of course, that relationship ended as well, but restaurants were closed and they were hitting the COVID unit. So like, hey, can you get food to the COVID unit? Yeah. And I had the the place. That's like March. So we're in March. We're in. We're going like sixteenth, fifteenth. Yeah, we're like going the, in that really dark time. Yeah, like nobody almost. Nobody knew what was coming. Nothing. People were dying left, right, and center. Yeah. No one knew. And I think it was the when it was all the the the, the campaign. And no one knew the disease. When no one understood that it was going to just be transmitted with breath. Um, they thought it. They remember there was that period where I remember the first time I went into a supermarket, like six weeks later. It was like nobody was touching anything. Every, Nothing. Every, everybody you know, was scared about touch rather yeah, than breath. They were buy packaged food and fruit, and it was. Really they weird. talked about if you remember the gloves in the beginning. That's right. Yeah, versus yeah. like masks. Yeah. So now you um, you've been asked to provide food for who? No, well, I didn't ask. I, I just had a thousand places in my fridge for WeWork, and then the girl that I really like liked. Yeah. She was at the COVID unit. Yep. At Memorial Sloan. And she's like, we the restaurant's closed. We have no food. Yeah. Can you bring like can you can you bring me and my colleagues some like you have anything around sure. you? I had these extra plates where we work, so I started. I went there and dropped it, and then all of a sudden they told her she told her friend at Mount Sinai, which is on 97. I went and dropped it there, and all of a sudden I'm taking pictures. Don't yep. forget from my rest for days the, for the frontline workers. You basically providing. for the frontline workers, yeah, but this is like was, yeah. March 16th, March 17th. Yeah, and a scary time for them because they were basically back to back 70, 80 hours a week. Exactly. Yeah, dying, and nobody's nobody knew anything. What, yep. But then I have, don't forget from the refugee days, I have a lot of journalists following me. Yep. So all of a sudden, like I get a call from MSNBC. They're like, um, or a DM. Like, are you feeding the frontline workers? TV network. For yeah. TV network. Yeah. Yep. And I was like, yes, they're like, Come to the show tomorrow. Yeah. So I naturally, in the business savvy sense, created a GoFundMe. I was like, we're going to be on TV. <laughs> Might as well do that. Yeah. So I asked, I was like, can you talk about the GoFundMe? Because we would like to provide for the healthcare workers. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, sure. So we were the first one. So they put us on TV. This company's feeding the frontline workers. We were the first ones to do it globally. And that became an international trend because yep. then after that moment, everybody started feeding like, yep. the healthcare workers, yep. right? Um, some Italian restaurant here, uh, Vin, um, Vino and Luca or whatever it's called, right, right. that was doing it. They raised a lot of money. World Central Kitchen started doing it. Everybody started doing it. Yep. And then, it, but we, at the, because the GoFundMe happened and we had to deliver those meals, right? I expanded to every hospital. I expanded so quickly yep. that eventually I became a subcontractor to World Central Kitchen. Uh, and I, wow. did, I did a relationship with them. But then, as I was doing this work with World Center Kitchen, on May 7th, my father dies of COVID, but the Washington Post did I'm a big piece. sorry, P. I didn't know that. Yeah, ending's beginnings. And where was he? He was in Palestine, which yeah. only spoke about the healthcare and access and things that I would like to sure. focus on through our foundation now. But May 7th comes around. May 7th, the Washington Post comes out at noon uh, with a piece about uh, the migrant kitchen, cements it as a, a national disaster relief operator, something like World Central Kitchen. So um, World Central Kitchen, for the people that don't know, is... Is uh, one of my, the organizations that I, you know, completely like uh, are not only believe in, but they're my role models. Mm -hmm. Jose Andreas, 
started an organization that believes in food security mm-hmm. uh, and fighting food insecurity. Mm-hmm. So he started in Haiti mm-hmm. uh, when the hurricane happened 10 yeah. years ago. And the operation quickly grew to become the largest disaster relief operator around the country and the globe, right. really, in which they provide cooked food. So not only that they help the supply chain, but they also deliver food. And one of the yeah. biggest things for them is uh, Hurricane Maria in Puerto yeah. Rico, which they're active till today. And their CEO, Nate Mook, is, is one of the kindest people. And Sam Block, who runs their operations relief. Sam and I worked together in New York and again in Beirut, uh, uh, in New York together in Beirut separately, but... Um, He's like the Che Guevara with like hummus. It's, it's yeah. very interesting, <laughs> right? So anyway. Um, I had a great meal in Beirut, by the way. Oh, Beirut is, is yeah, amazing. It was, a little, it was a little sketchy. Yeah, um, of course. It was late at night. A couple of my friends were like, yeah, we don't want to walk down that street. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> no, it's it safe. Good. It's yeah. safe. But so anyways, we started doing that. And all of a sudden we get uh, a call like, hey, guys, can you feed the Department of Aging? Here's a multi-million dollar contract. Wow. But at two o'clock, my dad passes. Right? right. So this was this whole like, you don't know what's happening. Like yeah. overnight your life changes, but also at the same time, like this saddened thing happened that you're already like suffering from. Sorry. Sorry, keep going. So, um, so your dad passes. So you my dad passed. Massive offer. The world's in lockdown. The, Things are kind of blurry. And, but like, it's hard to process all of it. So I didn't process anything. I just kept right. on go, 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 go. For the sake of time, we ended up scaling from. A few thousand meals to around 15,000 a day. Wow. By the time in July, something crazy, like the NASDAQ comes and we close the bell and, and, and like we do like a speech and all that stuff. And all of a sudden, by the end of it, we did uh, a few million meals or, or above 2.7. I mean, the official number that we go by is 2.5, but it was much higher than that. But at the same time, as I was operational in New York, I started feeding hospitals in Jerusalem. Yep. remotely, right? Because my father, all that stuff. Yep. And I would realize I'm able to do that remotely or with just the same access, the same way that World Center Kitchen does, right? Like gotcha. like I figured out the process. And I started doing Beirut as well. Beirut was already going through a financial, a banking, an economic crisis, the, yep. the banking crisis. There was a lot of food insecurity. But it didn't really take off. Like, I mean, we were doing a few hundred meals a day. It didn't really take off because we, I didn't have the money for that, right? Yep. Like, I was doing that out of pocket. Yeah. So, whatever. So you can't pay your rent, but you're basically making meals for people. For making meals for people. <laughs> I think we need uh, to buy you a house. I think, so we know yeah, you're okay I, I, I feel like this I was still living with, with some roommates at the time. And, but still, nonetheless, like this, was, but it felt good. You know, it felt good to do that. And then um, we, were, we were doing these meals in Beirut, but then the port incident happens. Yep. And all of a sudden there's international attention, but I'm already operational on the ground. Yep. And, lo- and thankfully, because of the New York operation, we have a lot of credibility. So sure. donations started pouring in and we scaled up to thousands of meals. We're still operational in Beirut till so today. So don't you find this ironic? Three disasters put you on your ass, mm. but one disaster built your... Company, company to help others yeah there's something in that right Th- this is the whole point and this is the whole mission so when we created so now when the migrant kitchen became a supply chain disaster relief organization yeah that now has a big facility in queens which is something i never really throw though i would have plus it has the brick and mortar cuisine the arab latino which i always wanted to do and it hired charlie the guy from we work to become head of logistics and then head of marketing yeah and then i hired christoph mars the guy who gave me for a job at la pen quotidian who became yep. head of northeast eventually and now he's our ceo right it all came one full circle from one disaster to the next every single step of the way of that story somebody came through 
right? Wow. And helped out. It didn't really, it, was, it all came together almost. And also like the gastro diplomacy stuff, how would I knew or how would I know the fact about like how to get into government contracts and be registered and be vetted? I mean, this is a hard long-term process. Sure. And the only reason I did that is because I was already doing the Turkey stuff, the sure. Morocco stuff, right? So every single failure propelled forward. And I think this is probably the hardest lesson I learned is that if you're going to eat the shit, don't nibble. Yep. And if you're going to fail, yep. make sure to fail fast. Yeah. Right. And every failure, if you do repetition, eventually gets you into success. But you have to have an A-list team that you trust and things like that and, and put it forward. And we were able to do that. And now we're building this brand that has brick and mortar, that has supply chain, that has disaster relief. But it, only, but it cares about culture. Sure. And this is really the business we're in. We sell culture. And what is the culture that we're selling? We're selling the culture of inclusivity. Mm -hmm. We're selling the culture of uh, the fact that we must pay our workers above minimum wage, 20 to 25 an hour, which is what we do. Mobility. I love Kodak, for example, as a company, because yep. Kodak in the 80s, you could have been the janitor and become head of business development. Now you could be a janitor at Apple and not necessarily make it to head of business development, sure. even though coding is free. Versus like learning, you know, like back in the 80s. So this is the kind of company we want to do. And now this, our company, which is mostly women, uh, it is LGBTQ led. So our yep. CEO is gay and also our head executive chef is gay, right? And uh, we allow everybody, a person of color to, to come in and, and, and even, you know, white people doesn't matter. Sure. Like it's inclusive, but it allows us to come together as one unit to sell to the world, right? Extraordinary. Exactly. And with that, we talk about like, how does that food reflect us? Yep. So when Ryan Sutton did a piece on our food, which came out uh, two weeks ago, which cemented us, I mean, it was an honor to be critiqued so by Ryan, Ryan Sutton, Sutton from, yep. from Eater, critiqued yep. us. And he's you know, one of the most important critics in the country um, and also very political and, and a good dude. When he re reviewed us, I mean, it was, it was a dream come true. I mean, and again, like five years ago, I wanted to do this Arab Latino thing. and didn't really figure it out. And now we have a cuisine that the press cements as not a fad, not fusion, sure. but as a cuisine. Sure. This, is, this is a new thing. So this is where we are now, and I like, really well, hope... I want to ask you one thing. Are you huh? happy? Am I happy? Uh, I'm proud. You should be. Yeah, proud. Yeah, am, I, am, I, am I happy? I think that is relative uh, to the day-to-day. -day. Well, contentness is the yeah. most important. Right? And that's so. something because, and I speak about this with Mark a lot. I mean, I have, you know, I'm bipolar. I suffer from manic depression. I have vitiligo because I'm so depressed. Yeah. So, which is a conversation uh, for the sake of time is a different time. But like, I speak heavily about mental health. Sure. So happiness is relative. But I think if you want to be happy, I think the only happiness I do is by pushing and being kind and going forward. It's the only reason I ask is because I always say, no, I'm content. Yeah. And because it's a fleeting emotion like anger yeah. and sad and, yeah. and so forth. But, you know, you've got purpose, you know, yes. you know and, and I'd say a good portion of the world still doesn't find that in their entire life. So the fact that you found it through and I wouldn't also call what you did as failures. I would just say that there were stepping stones to get to where you were. I mean, they uh, yes, but when you can't make your credit card bills and you're yeah, out on the street, ago, whatever, like, it's really hard. You're sleeping yeah, yeah, yeah. on somebody's couch and then you're hitting yeah. the Nasdaq bell. It's kind of extraordinary. And you didn't do this over And it's also years. bipolar in itself because right. also it didn't take like a few years to happen. I mean, there was months yeah. between that and that. Like at one point, you can't believe it. Yeah, this is not over a 20-year period. This is over, I yeah. mean, pretty much the... The, the, the idea that three disasters put you on your ass, as I said before, and then, a, and then a really horrible disaster in Beirut basically elevated the company to be exposed to the world. And, and be, because cementing it as an international operator. Right. right. And now that you've got great people out under you or with you, 
uh, beside you, you can actually grow that into something tangible. Yeah, I mean, the team that we have, I have to say, you know, I, I don't think this company would here, be here without them. I mean, you have uh, Chef Lasalle Brito, who ran our operations, and now she's running Braze, which is our private catering operations. Yep. Uh, you have Dan Dorado, who is, you know, my co-founder, the president, with his vision and his execution, which is, you know, very methodical. Sure. Uh, we have Jacqueline Tanny, who now is the head of our foundation, yep. uh, which is what we do to do all the nonprofit stuff that nobody pays for. But it cemented us as a national, also a uh, nonprofit arm. Yep. Uh, Christoph Mars, our CEO. Ramona, who's Chef Lee's wife. And she runs our operations up in International House at the dormitory um, yep. in uptown. It's, it's an, an amazing team. Chef Alex Hernandez, Chef Antonio, who just had a baby yesterday. Would you ever do a, um, would you ever do a Jewish Palestinian dinner? We, I did that multiple times, actually. Yeah. So Jacqueline herself is Jewish. We, we should do a dinner together. Yeah, and, yeah absolutely. So I do something even in Neuhaus. Do, and, you, do you know Seeds of Peace? No. Seeds of Peace is an organization you should definitely look up. I'm part of Seeds of Peace. It's an organization that brings uh, Palestinians and, and Israelis together, Palestinians sure. and Jews together, and talk about how to, to bring peace about in a, yep. in a, in a, in a, in a non kind of like rosy, like, oh, kumbaya kind of way. No, let's talk about real problems and solve yep. it. And I'm a, I'm a very proud uh, Seeds fellow from Gather. Uh, and I have to tell you that when I was going through my roughest time, uh, Jonah, who is the director of, of, of Seeds, and along with Oren, who's an Israeli guy, who now works with us as well. He's our company therapist because we're very progressive. We have a company sure. therapist. Yep. I'm, uh, I'm joining. <laughs> yeah, please do. Um, well, in New York, if you don't have two therapists, something's wrong with something's you. Well, wrong you're with not you. a real New Yorker. But Oren and Jonah are the ones who took me to the hospital to prevent me from suicide watch. Wow. And they saved my life. So like the, the love and the interaction with people can happen on the people-to-people -people level. And I used to do a lot of Maimuna dinners. Do you know what they are? Yep. Yeah, so I held a lot of a lot of those, and I'm very, very, very proud that I was able to do that. But you know, at those dinners, again, I don't shy away from having hard topics. Sure. Right? I sure. understand that people's feelings can get sometimes high. People sometimes get really emotional. Sure. Right? But the idea is not to get on a dinner table and, and, and hold hands for photo ops. The idea is to yeah, get I on get the dinner that. table yeah. and have real conversations about real yeah. things. And then let's think about solutions. But and in also a, when you eat with someone, there's something about, it's, it's about a stone throw away being naked with them. There's something mm -hmm. different that changes in a person. The shield's down. You see how they, their body language, you have a glass of wine, maybe a few too many. And then yeah, you start yeah, yeah. to see people's emotions come out. And I think it's really, really. Powerful. No, absolutely. And I have to tell you my interaction. I mean, yeah, that's it. Cool. Yeah, the last thing I guess I want to say, like the interaction, just me on a personal level on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. There's a lot of problems. The embassy move was crazy. What's happening in Gaza is, yep. is insane, and I'm working really hard trying to fight food insecurity and the occupation and the arresting of children, all of that. But in the United States, my interaction with the Jewish community was phenomenal because at the end of the day, like who came to the aid of Syrian refugees that we worked with is mostly Jewish community, sure. to be honest with you, right? Yeah, wow. At the same time, like my best friend, Justin, you know yeah. what I mean? Like that we met when we were 17 and I, he was so, he's like, I have to tell you something now. said after we, we met and became closer, yeah. I, like, I was like, what? He's like, I'm Jewish. I'm like, so what? And, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Like there was like, do we, do we tell this? Yeah. And then like with Seas of Peace, I mean, uh, the future is only through dialogue and through brave decisions that happen through dialogue. Yep. And if we can't see the human in each other, nothing will ever work out. Wow. And that's, you know, you're and that's a it. fucking legend. Oh, thank you. <laughs> We're really honored to have you on. Thank we could you, probably sir. go for another two hours easily. I would love um, to have you guys over and, for dinner. Uh, Let's make it a, happen. We're going to have to do a dinner at Neuhaus or something together. Please, please. We, um, we'd love to have you involved. Um, Immigrant Kitchen. Can you give us um, all the details of your organization? Sorry. I said Mike. I'm saying <laughs> Immigrant Migrant. Yeah. <laughs>
um, can you give us the the network? Is it migrantkitchen.com? Is that yeah, how it's we uh, migrantkitchennyc.com? Migrantkitchennyc.com. Yeah, um, I do have to say that we didn't know there was a PBS show called The Migrant Kitchen. Uh-huh. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, when people right. Google us, there's a lot of press. I'm like, well, are you guys a TV show? The, like, we hope so. Just look out for the color because there's a really. Yeah, The Migrant Kitchen. The migrant kitchen's We're currently down on Stone Street uh, on 45 Stone Street. At the Dubliner, which is a pop-up bar, right? Uh, we're available online on on, and every time you buy a meal, you feed a New Yorker, so it's a buy a meal, give a meal for every twelve dollars bought, we feed somebody in need. Amazing! So, thank you for coming thank on you, the show. Thank you so You're much. Thank you. You too. Thank you again. All right, folks, that's it for today's show. If you love what we do, we'd appreciate if you follow, share, and like us. We love our listeners. We love you. The Raw Hospitality Show, Season Two.